Money Review podcast, the future of money in 30 minutes. I'm Paul Amory, the editor of New Money Review. Money is a form of communication, like writing, music and art. It goes back to the origins of human history. And now money is changing fast, in a way that will affect all our lives. New types of money arrive out of nowhere, like Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. Payments get faster, cheaper and digital. But as some things get easier, others become more complex. Some people are at risk of being excluded from the new world of money, those using cash. There's increasing concern about what happens to our payments data, probably the most valuable digital records of all. In some areas of money, criminals and fraudsters are having the time of their lives. So when using new forms of money, how do we know if we're at risk of being scammed? Where do all these changes leave our traditional money, our dollars, pounds, euros and yen? What's the role of governments and central banks in this new world? And what about the big tech firms like Google, Apple, Facebook, and the Chinese tech giants, Alipay and WeChat, who are moving quickly into money? The New Money Review podcast takes a big picture look at all these trends and at their impact on society. It's not just money that's changing, but technology, finance, law, government, and culture with it. Each episode, we interview a leading expert on one or more of these topics. By listening to the podcast, you can stay up to date with what's going on in money. If you enjoyed this podcast, please like it and share it with your friends and network. Your recommendations will help us grow. My guest on this episode of the podcast is Gerald Ashley, who's an advisor, broadcaster, writer and speaker, specialising in change, risk and decision making. Gerald worked for over 30 years in the financial markets at Bering Brothers in London and Hong Kong and the Bank for International Settlements in Basel. He's a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts and also a visiting fellow at Newcastle Business School. Well, Gerald, welcome to the New Money Review podcast. Um, could you start by telling listeners a bit about yourself and your area of work? Uh, Paul, thank you. Uh, yes, I come from a financial background, so it makes um, particular sense, I suppose, to be uh, doing this uh, interview with you. Um, I started my career back in really what was a, a different era, which is in the City of London in the late 70s, uh, well, 1977 which of course seems an enormous um, length of time ago and also a great deal of difference in the technology. Um, I was at the merchant bank Bearing Brothers, which became sort of famous for all the wrong reasons. Um, And I spent most of my time initially in syndicated loans in the banking department and then through a variety of room uh, moves ended up in um, the treasury and trading department. Uh, Post Bearings, my banking career uh, continued in Switzerland, uh, where I worked for the Bank for International Settlements in Basel, uh, where I ran gold and foreign exchange trading for a number of years. Then, um, in time-honoured fashion, I decided to have a midlife crisis. Well, no, that's not really true, but I just really wanted a change from banking. So, um, I think it was 01 or 02, I came back from Switzerland and set up a small risk consulting business. And that's how I got into this whole business of um, risk in general, um, behavioral finance and science, which is a sort of hot topic these days. And the topic I particularly like talking about, uncertainty. So, so um, thank you very much for that uh, introduction. So how do, how do humans assess risk and where do we get it right and where do we get it wrong? Um, I think we, we do a number of things, um, a lot of which are lazy shortcuts. Um, or grabbing for the first solution that looks like the answer. I think a lot of people um, view decision-making a bit like when you've lost some keys. 
you hunt around and hunt around, and of course, once you find your keys, you you stop. That is logical in when searching for keys. It may not be when looking at um, either assessing risks or trying to make big decisions, because there often isn't a definitive solution or answer. And the message of that is to suggest that um, most problems that are difficult to address or risks that are difficult to assess, if you like, are dynamic and are not stable or even static. And there is a tendency for us to want the right answer, uh, the correct solution, give it to me now. If you can stick it in a spreadsheet, even better. And the real world is just a little bit more slippery than that. Yeah, I noticed earlier you said that you uh, are interested in the in the question of uncertainty. You didn't say risk. So what what let's let's talk about definitions for a second. What what's the difference between risk and uncertainty? Um, that's a very good question. I think we can put it quite straightforward in terms of the ability to look at past stable, predictable data. So uh, a very obvious sort of risk model, although you wouldn't think of it as a risk, is to predict uh, sunrise and sunset or uh, tide tables. I suppose a little bit of risk with tide tables. And um, we've got a huge amount of back data. It's very reliable. It's very stable and cyclical. And so it's quite possible uh, to project that forward to know what high tide is going to be in Southampton in 100 years' time, or in Valparaiso in Chile, or wherever it may be. And that, that lesson is saying to us that risk and risk management works well when you have a, a lot of stable um, data that goes back and in depth. Um, uncertainty, of course, is the exact opposite. It's where you may find it quite difficult to find decent data. Um, it may be uh, not at all stable. Uh, it may not even exist. Uh, and in the extreme form, we're looking at um, uh, the, the old idea of unknown unknowns. And um, that's where we are genuinely totally ignorant. We don't, not that we're stupid, but we don't know that asteroid is going to hit us, you know, in two hours' time. Yeah. Um, like all these things, there's a continuum. At one end, we've got very stable risk-like properties. And at the other end, we've got what I've just described as unknown unknowns. Um, the problem in life, of course, is most sit somewhere in the middle on, on that sort of slide rule. And um, we have to sort of make a judgment as to is something a risk or is it really more of an uncertainty? If it is an uncertainty, we should approach it differently. I mean, anyone who spent any time in financial markets will you know, probably can think uh, for themselves of, of, of uh, cases where what, they, what people thought was a measurable and manageable risk turned out not to be. It, it happened in the, I remember the 1987 crash shortly after I started my first job. And hmm. people, people were completely shocked by the scale of that uh, fall in US equities. A few years later, people had kind of, well, not forgotten about it, but it was a look like, like a, a blip on the chart, but uh, it didn't feel like it at the time. Uh, and then of course, 2008 people had, had uh, you know, put their trust in models of credit ratings that didn't work. And then suddenly everybody was floundering. I mean, there are many, many such uh, occasions in markets. And, and so you know, do, are we learning from, do people in the markets simply not learn from history or, or are we getting better well, at measuring I, risk? 
Yeah, I think there are two observations. The first one is that this, the um, crash cycle, for want of a better phrase, is often slightly longer than the collective memory of the market. Um, I vividly remember 87. In fact, I've been in market some 10 years and it was, uh, believe it or not, it was my first day uh, in a trading room in Hong Kong. And uh, it's a day I will never forget. It was an extraordinary day um, to the extent that the Hong Kong stock market was close for the rest of the week whilst the local authorities um, completely panicked. Um, the, the, the thing is that uh, and a more jokey level is to say, don't worry if you've missed a crash or be another one along soon enough. As but people in cryptocurrency are now, uh, are now discovering. <laughs> well, yes. But I think the, the, I think the thing is about collective memory. And in a, in a way, um, we're built for collective memory. You know, humans like storytelling. We keep history. We keep data. We keep records. And then we go back and analyze it. And wearing the metaphor slightly thinly now, you know, we can predict the tide and, and uh, sunrise and all the rest of it. And we like that because it gives certainty. So an enormous amount of enormous amount of effort, I always think, in financial markets is uh, uh, endlessly polishing the rear view mirror, uh, looking at past data and then trying to extrapolate forward. And as you say, it has a nasty habit of, um, of tripping us up. Yeah. Yeah. So so. Um... You know, given that difference between risk and uncertainty, you know, how should we plan for the, for the, you know, the, the extreme uh, uncertainty, the things that come once in a generation or once, you know, when we least expect them, or, sh or, is, or should, we, should we just accept those as acts of God when they, when they happen? Well, I think they always will be an act of God to an extent, simply because almost inevitably because of the reliance on data, uh, we are fighting the last war all the time. Uh, so you can be pretty clear that when there's been a crash caused by one reason, that won't be the reason that causes the next one. Though again, they go in and out of fashion. I mean, 1987 was really all about uh, overgearing, which is fairly common. And there were no circuit breakers in stock markets. So there was so-called program trading that just drove the market um, you know, almost to infinity in the sense of the, there was there was no real buying power. Um, in terms of what we need to do is we need to stop thinking we can solve this issue and that there is a solution and actually take a slightly more, I wouldn't say relaxed, but certainly a looser view of, of looking at things. And that means acknowledging that, first of all, um, the the world tends to move in, in, in two modes. It's either incremental or disruptive. And it's very difficult to predict disruptions. So you have to be very open-minded and you have to keep asking questions because how you, how you turn uncertainties into risks is how you build up your information level. If, for example, you and I were going to try and develop a model that would predict terrorist attacks, um, that's extremely difficult to do. Um, thankfully, there isn't a huge amount of data. It's certainly not normalized. It doesn't um, lend itself to putting into a normal distribution curve. Um, and so it's got very difficult characteristics. So we have to say to ourselves, well, a straightforward risk model is not going to work. Much better to do um, or look at the attitude of a detective 
and look at um, constantly question all the aspects of what's going on, use scenario planning, um, and try to think differently about things. Extremely difficult in financial markets. Financial markets are driven by something which I think is the dominant story. Uh, where there's always a reason for everything in financial markets. You never ever hear any commentator say, well, actually, the market moved by X points yesterday. It was completely random. Or, or to say, well, actually, none of us have got a clue why. Um, yeah. And I, I think this, this overemphasis on being a know-all about what's just happened and extrapolating forward is a mistake. So the approach has to be very open-minded. Um, and this is sometimes why I get a little bit tetchy with the risk management industry, because I think a lot of people in risk management aren't managing risk. They're measuring risk. And what they should be doing is identifying risks. So we need to be like doctors or detectives trying to work out, you know, why the patient isn't well or why the murder happened. But there's no definitive correct answer. Yeah, I, I, that brings me to um, um, something that Paul Craven, who you, you know well, said on, on the, hmm. uh, the New Money Review podcast recently that, you know, as in organizations, uh, you know, you should really go to your um, boss and say you know this is this is what we you know what we're thinking of doing but this is where it could go wrong you should look at the possible um reasons that something might fail and what the potential losses might be as an investor that's you know that's a kind of a safety first approach but he also made the point that if you do that your you know your boss might you're hardly selling it to your boss it's not you know it's not an obvious way of doing something within an organization so what what can we you know what can we do to encourage let's say a more open dialogue between I, I think I mean, it's yeah. difficult. I, yeah. I, I think um, manufacturing industry has been quite good at this, coming away from finance. I don't know how actually the very best way to do it in finance. But a, a, a good way is if we go back to the Second World War, and um, I believe it was the aircraft company Lockheed who set up the original skunk works. And this was an idea that you peeled out some of not necessarily the very best, but some good quality staff and you, you effectively sat them in a room and asked them to dream up new ideas and new products um, away from the general business. Now that actually is difficult to get people to do because they're worried that they'll be out of the mainstream and they're worried that um, if they come up with a square wheel, it will reflect badly on them. Lockheed had a very clever little trick they used to promote anybody who'd been in the skunk works, irrespective of whether or not um, it had delivered anything successful. So that released people from this sort of structure of, um, you know, finger pointing and all the rest of it. I think in financial markets, um, there are two general things that, that are worth saying. Um, gearing, or gearing, or if you prefer leverage, um, is extremely dangerous, even in yeah. fairly in fairly small doses. Yeah. Even in fairly small doses. And the idea that people are going to day trade on five percent margins and all this is just insanity. Um, that's that's one element. The other element is, I think, to get away from the tyranny of models. Models are fine in their place. In fact, they absolutely make perfect sense and are are. Um, uh, you know, an integral part of, of, of running a bank or a broking or investment firm. 
but they're not the entire answer. There is no magic solution. So I think having um, a sort of um, devil's advocate approach to some of the standard methods is useful, but it is difficult to get people to do that. Uh, I think in financial markets, we have a lot of groupthink and people just want to follow a dominant story. And, and they often, dare I say it, um, just find the model that fits their view of what's going on. So it's just a conf confirmation bias that uh, that happens all the time. Yeah, I, we're, I, we're all I, we're all prone to it. So we have to yeah, question absolutely. our own assumptions. To, yeah, what extent, to what extent is the fact that we're now in an you know extremely connected world, not just through the way we all work uh, on the internet, but through social media, that you know reinforces probably some of these narratives? Is 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 that does that is that something that concerns you that the types of bubbles we're getting are actually more extreme than they used to be? Yeah, yeah, I think I think it is a I think it is a concern. I mean, I think it's it's maybe more to do with speed than outcome because we've had you know phenomenal crashes, South Sea bubble, um, uh, Dutch tulips, all the rest of it. When we were relying on the post taking five days between London and Amsterdam, so the only real difference is it, a, a lot of it is about speed. Um, I think you're right about the overconnect overconnected world and it's again it's not just in finance do i really want my fridge telling sainsbury's that i need more milk um it seems to me that a lot of this is sort of unnecessary it is very prone to being hacked and all the rest of it back in the finance world um this leads into an area uh, called complexity science and it's the idea that financial markets are obviously networks but they're not networks in the way you might view the London underground map. Uh, they flex, um, they're non-linear. Uh, they don't necessarily happen in a nice straightforward time frame. So all of, the, all of these elements do not lend themselves to hard metrics, spreadsheets, and very precise models. So uh, to me, at the end of the day, you do need a certain amount of judgment. You may not need much judgment to be quite a bit better than people around you. But I think judgment should be at far more of a premium uh, than, than sort of calculating power. And does that mean that the, the people responsible for the, the safety of the whole system, that, does that mean that the fact that those networks are, are kind of dynamic and, and chaotic, does that mean that the job of the supervisors is really just to put circuit breakers in place and to, and to if they can find the circuit yeah if they can find the circuit because i think one of the things uh, you know and that, that's not that sounds more critical than perhaps i mean uh, you know if we go back to the london underground map uh, as a way of thinking about let's say the global banking system the really big stations in the sort of oxford circuses of this world um uh, are sort of jp morgan hsbc the usual you know, the usual suspects. They're, they're the big banks. They're important conduits and exchanges for all the flows yeah. of money. Now, one of the problems is sometimes there may be links to these institutions that are not on the map. A really good example of this was Lehman Brothers, who, to be frank, were really not a first division t uh, sort of player. They were, they were firm that had grown very largely, but I don't think you would have put them in the first rank of financial institutions. When they failed, or maybe more precisely, the Fed didn't think it would be a problem if they did fail, yeah. um, all, all sorts of terrible things happened. 
Uh, main, one of the big ones being prime brokerage, because they turned out to be a huge prime brokerage uh, conglomerate, and that wasn't on the map. It was a yeah. missing tube line. Yeah. And so I think understanding what relationships people have really got uh, with one another is, is, I mean, it's a Herculean task and you'll never get there. And yeah. we have to be careful about naming current uh, incidents, but there are two or three financial firms that seem to have suddenly burst um, uh, pop quite, quite, um, quite suddenly. But of course, yeah. they were in maybe a less regulated area or that part of the map that was a bit dark and not fully understood. Yeah, and there's always some kind of new form of shadow banking taking place just outside the. You know, the regulators obviously are looking at the system that they've inherited, and there's there's probably something going on just around the the corner that they can't see very clearly. Exactly, it's always yeah. just beyond the boundary where a lot yeah. of people sort of pitch their tent. Yeah, um, all of this may sound like a council of despair, but I think. Uh, the, the correct approach is flexibility. I just um, want to, Sean, I'm sorry to interrupt you there because I, 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 what you're saying is I find really fascinating, but I want to take you back to, um, I, I've been a, an avid listener of your uh, oral histories of the old city and, uh, and oh, the, yes. the transcripts that went with them. Now, one of the things I read a lot about was the uh, banking crisis in 1973-74 in, in London. Yes. At that time, the, the Bank of England basically locked the key bankers in a room. For, for a day or two until they worked out who was going to contribute how much. And there was a kind of a, a bailout. And that was the way that it was done in the old city where there was, I guess, because there were concentric circles of power with the Bank of England in the middle. And then there were people, the, the institutions closest to it. And then the, maybe the, 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 the merchant banks and the clearing banks, and then the, the secondary lenders that had got in trouble in the property market. And that, that seems like an old way of doing things. Uh, you know, is that approach still viable in the current world or is that, really has that system now disappeared? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it looks, well, two things to say. Um, that world was smaller and it was slower. So, you know, if you, I always say the most dangerous day for a bank is always Friday because they always go bust on Friday evenings. So, which the authorities probably have known for a few days, but they try to hang on to a Friday because at least you've got the weekend yep. to try and do something about it. Even that comment now sounds maybe rather old-fashioned. I mean, I don't know weekends are quite what they used to be because of your comment about the connected world. Um, the, 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 you know, it, a lot of cliches are going to tumble out in this comment, but I mean, it is obviously much more connected. Um, it's it's freer and quicker for people to to be able to move or react or badly react. So I think it's increasingly difficult if we had a systemic risk which I suppose was the situation in 08. Um, uh, you know, we, we'd had trouble with hedge funds in 07 and then Bear Stearns went bust and then obviously Lehman um, later in the year. Um, if that was to happen now, I think it would happen even faster and it would be equally, if not more difficult to sort out. Yeah. Um, one of the things that may not be very popular uh, in the financial industry is that we need to disconnect things a little bit, mm. actually slow things down slightly. Um, do, do we need all this sort of hyperactivity in stock markets where people are trading in and out on literally nanoseconds? This, this all seems like um, unnecessary uh, activity. I mean, what, what, so, what real benefit and purpose is there to this other than that somebody makes a quick buck out of somebody else. 
Um, there's no service or, or genuine transaction going on there. Whether the mood will change, and I suppose it's politically, to say that we may need to slightly disconnect the world or maybe slight, slow it down slightly, and it'll be interesting to see. Um, I doubt it will happen, to be honest. Yeah. Um, you, you, you work with uh, businesses and, and consult with the different organisations on decision-making and, and, and risk-taking. Now, what, what you know, broader lessons can we take from the, the kinds of things you've been talking about for you know, how to manage our lives more successfully to, 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 to think, have better results in business? Yeah, I think um, industries that I think are particularly impressive in addressing risk are the pharmaceutical industry and the aeronautical industry. Um, now, the aeronautical industries had a bit of a bump in the road with the problem with um, the latest, um, was it Supermax Boeing or whatever the, yeah. the name of the yeah. aircraft was. But I mean, there's clearly a, a big problem there. And in fact, although it looks technical, it does seem to be coming back to human risk because there is a suggestion and um, maybe we say allegedly or be a bit careful in how we put it, but there is some suggestion that people who may have been gaming the rules on, on setting up this, the software. I mean, more uh, less contentious is to talk about the emissions problems with German car manufacturers, where they clearly um, more than bent the rules, they put a coach and horses through them. Um, I, I think that pharmaceuticals and aeronautical sort of, uh, institutions are interesting to look at because I suppose lives are at risk. You know, you can jokingly say, well, at the end of the day, it's only money in banking. Though that's that's rather a narrow view of things because the impact, obviously, of 0708 was, was serious to the real economy in terms of people losing jobs and, and, and genuine loss of wealth. Um, in terms of the lessons those industries use that we should adopt more, um, a lot of it is scenario planning. A lot of it is sort of um, blue sky thinking. And a lot of it is expensive. And uh, the accountants and indeed the shareholders who look at quarterly results don't like it because there's a cost in doing these sort of things. Um, and I think that's another tension. Quite where the regulators sit in all of this. I mean, I think it's, you know, it's... Um, it can be quite easy sometimes to kick the regulators, but almost by definition, they're always going to be slightly behind the game. Yeah. Um, I think that um, they have certainly got much better at regulating over the last 20 or 30 years, but by definition, they will, they will miss the next really big scandal. Um, yeah. All I think the regulators can do is hope that they, they can contain any such scandals or crashes or fiascos and equally that the overall system is robust enough to take the hit yeah. it's complete it's complete pie in the sky to think you can avoid taking a hit basically so yeah. you have to ride with the punches yeah and and, and that as individuals in this you know risky world um you, you've talked about how our behavioral traits influence the way we see things and we're all prone to biases of various kinds and what can we do as individuals to try and keep a more open mind think, about what's going on yeah I, one of the things i like to talk a little bit about is what i call the difference between journeys and destinations 
And this comes up a lot in, in finance where people say, oh, you know, um, invest in this and you'll make 8% a year. And we look at, we look at the sort of um, destination and people then turn around and say, well, if you've been in the stock market and been quite prudent for the last 40 years, you've made a lot of money, which is true. But it hasn't been an easy journey. Um, we talked about um, 87. There's obviously the dot-com bust in 2000, 08, 09. Now the uh, coronavirus bust of 2020. These things keep, keep happening. And I think as humans, we find it very difficult to be resilient enough to um, survive the journey. Yeah. We focus too much on the destination. And one of the problems is that um, we, we need to have more resilience. And that may mean we need to be a little bit less speculative. We certainly need to be less geared so that you yeah. can take a 20% hit yeah. in real terms and you know ignore it, which you can't do if you're trading on 10% margin because you've just gone bust. And I think um, it all sounds very dull and boring and maybe deliberately so. Um, when I hear in finance people talk about excitement, um, I get a bit worried. Finance should not be exciting. It, yeah. it, it, it's, you know, it's not that sort of game. So our objective should be to, to stay in the game uh, as long as possible um, and that will then things will sort themselves out. Indeed. Um, I think... One, one other point, just to reiterate again, stop grabbing for solutions. Um, a, a, lot of, a lot of things don't have a direct solution. Again, investment's a good example. You take retirement planning. What the hell is the right thing to do? Do you um, stay in stocks? Should you have a mixture of stocks and bonds? Should you be in property? Should you not even bother because the world's coming to an end? Or if you do get a nice pension pot, do you just blow the lot and not worry about the kids? There is no correct answer, and the answers are different for whoever it is. And this is where scenario planning comes in. Yeah. So uh, as you say on your website, quoting Dwight Eisenhower, plans are useless, but planning is indispensable. Exactly. It's, it's the dynamic situation around us, and we just have to try and be flexible. That comes with costs, whether it's in terms of monetary ones or just sheer brain power or effort to do it. But flexibility... Um, does pay off in the end. Yeah. Gerald, thank you very much for a fascinating discussion. I've really enjoyed having you on the podcast. Thank you. Been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of the New Money Review podcast, Future of Money in 30 Minutes. If you enjoyed this podcast, please like it, share it, or tell a friend about it. At our website, newmoneyreview.com, you can also sign up to our newsletter, which will keep you informed of all New Money Review articles and podcasts. If you'd like to support us, you can do so via Patreon or using cryptocurrency. Details of how to do this are on the homepage of our website in the right column. Finally, please join us soon for our next episode.